Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green and I'm your host and we want to move into the second Sunday of Advent in 2020. Shocking, seems to me that it could be that late in the year. It's been such a strange year. Um, odd week, every week it seems like for the last 450 years, I don't know. Um, hopefully we're you know, sometime going to change and go back to something that looks more like normal. But who knows at this point, right? I mean, it's been going on forever. We're moving backwards as far as opening up is concerned. There's more cases. There's all this stuff. It's um, tiresome. And it feels like it's been forever since we've had a normal life. And I stopped going to the gym because they started requiring masks to work out and just can't do that. Just doesn't feel like a good plan doesn't feel like a safe thing especially if you're going to work out the way I do and so we're going to have to make some alternative arrangements and hope that this ends at some point we're still hung up on this election deal still don't know we've had a bunch of hearings this week about what's going on and what went on actually in in some major cities and so I don't know I just don't know where we're going and what's going to happen here uh, I'm ready for something some conclusions, some finality to so many things. Everything is just up in the air. And it's always not a bad thing, actually, for God's people. I really believe that we in we were in need of a season of time that that shook the church up, that that took us away from our normal routine, because I believe that's one of the great dangers to the church is a, a that we fall into routine, not just for church, for the church, because the church is people, ultimately. And so I think we can fall into routines, and all routines are not bad, but if routine becomes rote, then as A.W. Tozer said, that problem with that is you can begin to just be going through the motions and doing things. And then the problem can become that we're just doing the things that we do. And we're in a comfort zone. And, and God's people don't really do well in comfort zones, to be perfectly honest with you. We need pressure on us. We need to be shaken up out of that reverie. Because if we're not, then Tozer said that what would happen is that rote could become a rut. And we could become so accustomed to doing things the way that we do that that. All we want is to get back to that. It's a rut. It's a familiar rut, and we're happy being in that place. And then he says the greater danger of that is it can go from rut to rot. We're not even aware that we're in a rut. We're not even aware that what we are is unhealthy, just doing things by routine. And then what we actually need, and we don't even know it, is revival. It's important. I think that that's an incredibly important reality for us, the church, to recognize right now. It would be a shame, actually, if we went back and started doing things exactly the way we'd been doing them before, the way we had always done them, at least for the last few years, and it, it without taking the time to reflect on whether what we were doing is actually the right thing to be doing, whether we were actually doing His will. I had a conversation with a friend this week about that very thing, questioning how we spend our money and, and what it is that, that the church is about. He is working with a ministry here in Asheville, and we were going to have some really cold nights. He said he realized that the, there was only one church 
in our whole downtown area that was opening its doors for homeless people to come and be and that church was a church that wasn't theologically sound but it made him question whether the church has failed in its theological soundness to actually be of use to the world and how does that protect us and how does it it keep us from actually doing the things that a couple of weeks ago we read Jesus saying that sheep and goats and he was drawing those distinctions based on the way people treated the rest of humanity and so it's it's is the church waking up I'm you know I just don't know I know we have an opportunity to right now I do believe that he's given us an opportunity to to press a reset button and to get started he's trying to shake us up I think I think the church should take a time of introspection now since we're not able to do the things that we normally do we've got maybe to look and say well are we doing the things that are pleasing to God or are we doing something else there's a a, a concept in sociology called liminality and the concept of liminality applies I think now we'll probably talk about this some more actually over the next little bit this this idea of being shaken from our place when the foundations are shaken and we no longer have the place in society or wherever in somebody's life or whatever that we used to have you know and there's all kinds of different ways that you can experience liminality I mean moving to a new city changing jobs going through a divorce loss loss of a spouse loss of uh, somebody who, who was deeply meaningful in your life that all those things are are times when we experience liminality we've been accustomed to a certain place in a certain way and then suddenly everything that that made that comfortable was shaken doesn't even have to be lost, right? I mean, as far as somebody dying, it could be somebody being suddenly unable to do the things that they used to do and, and us having to, to begin to do those things. And it changes our routine. And the problem with, with it is, is with most of us, the first thing we want more than anything in the world is to go back to the way things were. And the way things were was actually the thing that needed to change more than anything else. And, and so most of our striving for a period of time, it's like going through grief, is trying to figure out how to get back to that and not accepting that things have changed and adapting and saying, all right, things that were, were comfortable, but were they right? Were they good? And so I think that, that Jesus comes and, and brings the people out stirs up the way things are and what is it that they're concerned about they're concerned that that they will lose the pharisees for instance and the scribes are concerned about one thing that they'll lose their place that that they're comfortable where they are and what they're doing and they're going to lose that and then what do they ultimately convict him of it's because he spoke against the temple because he said tear this down and in three days i'll rebuild it and so nobody wanted to lose the temple, but nobody also knew they were about to anyway by A.D. 70. And so they, they weren't sure, even the Christians weren't sure where they belonged. Do they keep going to the temple? Do they keep worshiping as they always have? Do you go to the synagogue? Where do you go? What do you do? How do you figure out your new place in life? 
And it's largely a matter of making that new place. But it's, it's evaluating the old and then keeping those things that are important and discarding the things that are not. That's the decision that the early church has to make in Acts 15 when they have to answer the Gentile question. What are we going to require these people to do if they're going to be part of this new Christian community? And, and, and is it a break from the old, or is it still connected to the old? And in what way is it connected to the old? And so how does the law apply? Certain aspects of the law are, are no longer applicable because you can't go to the temple. And so the ceremonial aspects of the law are no longer important. And then Peter gets the vision with all the f- different animals coming down out of heaven and then hearing the, the words go, kill and eat. And it's driving him away from what's comfortable and what's familiar and what's right to something else. Jesus does that very same thing. He's calling the people out. You know, I think the plagues in Egypt were for two reasons. One, it was to get the pharaoh to tell them they could leave but the other was to get the people to trust god enough to leave what was familiar even though it was painful they weren't ready yet and they got sort of comfortable along the way god's people get comfortable it's what we do it's what everybody does it's so human and but then we need sometimes uh, times like this Periods of liminality, when nothing is right, nothing is the same, and we have to search for what is right. And I wonder if we're doing that work of introspection. So anyway, that's just I've having to do some of that in my own life and uh, figure it all out. Some things are easier to figure out and straighten out than others, and other things, you know, we've got to um, we got to adjust around them. But we got to make decisions based on what God's calling us to do and telling us to do in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. And so it's difficult to go through this. It's easy to to see and to celebrate as long as nothing changes, right? I mean, the Israelites had to be driven out of the land in the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they had to leave the land because of their own sin. And so in the lessons we have today, starting with Isaiah, begins with comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so the prophet is commanded to go and tell the people that, that it's over. The punishment, the time of, of, of division and separation from the land is over after decades and then a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the lord is spoken changing the geography changing all of that but but did it, did it mean, initially, did it mean literally a change in the creation? And the answer is no, that's not what it meant. It was meant metaphorically. And so John is that voice. That's exactly who John says he is, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so John's telling the people what what you've come to Love and enjoy. We're going to be focusing on John this week, by the way. What you've come to love and enjoy and appreciate, this this um, 
place that you have in the land where it's not really yours, but you're safe from your enemies because the Romans keep you safe. He's telling them, be prepared for something new. Be prepared for change. Be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Isaiah is telling them, it's time to go back. It's time to make straight the way of the Lord. And that's the point of going back, is to, to become that beacon for all humanity. And he goes on and says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And the answer is, all flesh is grass and all its beauty. It's like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. He's reminding people the same thing that Solomon reminded them a few hundred years before, about three or four hundred years before the time of Isaiah. As, um, Solomon, in the Proverbs as well as clearly in Ecclesiastes, speaks of this um, passing of the, the material world. It's an interesting way of putting it, I guess, um, because what it's saying is it's really immaterial in that it's not permanent. It's real in the sense of being material, but it's not real in the sense that it, that it, it, it owes its existence to the grace of God and the mercy of God that any of this stands is due to the mercy of God rather than executing judgment on humanity. But, but is it real? That's a question C.S. Lewis kind of uh, dances at with. Um, when he talks about Jesus passing, the resurrected Christ, uh, appearing in the midst of the locked room where the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews, and, and his, he, he said, I want to stand that idea that most Christians have on its ear that, that Jesus is a vaporous ghost and he passes through the wall. And Lewis says, no, the resurrected Christ is far more real than anything we consider to be real. And so it's not that he passed through the wall, it's though the wall passed through him. And we know from quantum physics that there's a lot of truth in that, that the, the reality of anything is partly illusion. Because at a quantum level, things aren't solid. There are spaces between them. And so those things... Everything we think of is less solid than we understand it to be. doesn't mean we can pass through it, but if you're the right kind of thing, it would pass through you. And so that Lewis turned that on its head from a quantum perspective that Jesus was far more real, and the proof of that would be because he's eternal. Things that are true and material are not necessarily the things that we see. Those unseen realities, those spiritual realities, are more solid than the verities by which we kind of guide our lives if we're not guiding them by those spiritual truths. And, and the proof of that is very simple to see because truth changes all the time now. Things that have been accepted as true forever and ever and ever. For instance, what is a man? How do I know that that person is male or female well for thousands and thousands of years that's been a perfectly obvious thing and now the truth quote unquote is not so sure it's a matter of decision it's a matter of the will what what do i think i am
and that I'm intended to play along. Um, no. I'm guided by a different set of realities and a different set of truths. And, and what the world approves of and what it calls love may not fit God's definition. So we've got to, as Christians, guide ourselves by those things that are true and real because they are eternal and because they are from God. So those truths are truer than man's truth because we don't know enough to come to a different conclusion and say God is wrong. We can't possibly know enough. We weren't there when it was created. We don't know the purpose of creation except for in Jesus Christ. The purpose of his creation was revealed. The world was created for him. and It was created by him and through him, but it was created for him that he might come into this world that he created and saved this world. And everything hangs together in him. And so, so this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and lead them, lead those that are with young. In other words, fear not, for your God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. It'd be easier if God came with might and his arm ruled for him, because we do tend to think of that which is in front of us is more real, and so we tend to fear the wrong thing. We fear what we can see without realizing the evidence of our eyes is not what it ought to be. We become like the servant of Elisha when, when the armies are surrounding them at Dothan. And he panics because he knows they're going to be killed. And then Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And then the servant sees the angelic armies arrayed and realizes there was nothing to fear from the beginning. God's people need to wake up and we need to have our eyes open and we need to see those spiritual realities around us. We need to stand firm and in confidence in the truth that He's on the throne in all things and then persevere in doing the work that He's given us to do without fear of man. Don't worry about all those things. Keep your eyes fixed on Him like Peter had to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus in order to walk on the water. But when he turned his head and saw the wind... And its effect, he forgot that Jesus had commanded the wind and the waves. And we tend to lose that focus too, especially when, when the pressure's on. And, and here we are in a place where it's time for the church to, to get its spiritual eyes back on and remember who we are and whose we are and remember that he is the Lord of the universe and, and to go back to being about the things that were our first love, to recommit ourselves to the Word of God as the truth of God, commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind, the Savior particularly of those who believe, and then get about the work that He gave us to do, which is not just preaching the Word of God, but it's about things like healing. It's about the church reclaiming the power that was given to it. It's the church going back and becoming like the church that we read about 
in the book of Acts, which is under great pressure from the Roman Empire, at the same time it is growing and persevering and wonderful, miraculous things are happening for the church to celebrate. And Peter, in the passage we have from him, Second Peter 3, 8 to 15, is our epistle today. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that while that with the Lord one day as is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's considered the, the continued existence of the world prior to God's judgment to be mercy. Consider that not slowness, but God being patient, so that more and more people could come to know Him rather than many perish. And so he goes on to speak about that and says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all these things, all the heavens and the earth, the heavenly bodies and the earth will be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the word wisdom given to him. Paul's, or Peter, is reminding us that, that everything will pass away. All the things that we take pleasure and delight in, everything that we live for, everything we fear, is really completely owing its existence to the mercy of God. And so, so what we've got to do is proclaim the one by whose mercy all things continue to be upheld. And we do that, he says, by living certain kinds of lives, lives of holiness and godliness. And that brings us to our gospel, which is Mark 1, 1 to 8, and it's, it's a recapitulation of some of the things that are said in that first lesson from Isaiah 41 to 8. <coughs> Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism for the repent of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And we're supposed to see in that the comparison with Elijah. And then he goes on to say, And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so I spent some time this week thinking about this issue of baptism and what is baptism. And it, it doesn't... Pro- completely correlate with the practice of ritual bathing in the Old Testament, and it's only because baptism is different in the sense that it that it salvation event happens in that act of baptism. I'm going to look a little bit at the practice of that ritual bathing, and it's called mikvah, and the way that it works, the, the belief that Jews have regarding the mikvah, which is that ritual bathing, it's going down into water. There's a certain amount of water that you use to do that, and it's 
dependent on the source. It's somewhere between 720 and 950 liters of water, but it has to be enough to cover your entire body. And it, and it requires you to have nothing between you and the water because the belief is that God is in that water. He, he infuses all of the water molecules themselves. And so when you step into that ritual bath, into that mikvah, you're having a, as close an encounter as you're ever going to have with the living God. And the belief is that anything and everything is actually possible at that moment, all hope, all healing, because what's happening is, is that God's, you're coming into contact with the holy. It's an awesome thing if you understand it. It's not walking down just into some amount of water. No, it's you're supposed to take off all your jewelry. You're supposed to, if you're a woman, um, or even some men, <laughs> to take off your the makeup, any kind of anything that comes between your skin and that water, or even your nails. The, so you've got to strip off the. Um, the nail polish on fingers and toes. You've got to take off anything that that's on your skin or on you know your your nails and things like that 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 keeps that water from being fully efficacious. Anything that keeps it from touching any part of your skin. In order for that water to have its full effect, not that you'll defile the water because what they believe is that even if a million un impure people went into that water it would still be undefiled. And it can't just be water. I can't go to the tap. I can't take a hose and fill up a mikvah. I have to collect it first. It has to be natural water. I have to collect it from a river, from a lake, from the rain. It has to be God's water. In other words, it can't be treated in any way. It can't pass through something else. It has to be collected and brought into that and then therefore it has to be collected in certain kinds of things it can't be in pottery because pottery is porous and so it can't be collected in pottery it has to be collected in certain sorts of ways and the porosity of the of the clay in an earthenware pot means that you can you can cleanse utensils and plates and things like that in things that, that have a coating on them you can you can cleanse those in a mikvah, and they can be purified vessels for service if they've been impure before. But you can't do that with earthenware pottery because it absorbs some of the water, and so you have to break that. And we are like that. And so we have to make sure that, that nothing prevents God's holiness and his purification in that mikvah from, from accessing every part of the body and so that's what a mikvah is and it's there for purification it's there first for sinners anybody who has sin in their lives should examine themselves and then go into the mikvah into this encounter with the living god and suzanne made the comment while we were watching some things that and, and i think it's uh, exactly right and that is is that that it's it kind of today at least replaces the sacrificial system that would have been there in the temple and now it's incredibly important in fact it's the first thing that a jewish community in a new place has to have you can't you if you wanted to start a new congregation the first thing you're supposed to do is 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 build a mikvah 
If you only have money for that, then you have to do that. That's more important in the community than actually than having a Torah scroll or a synagogue. So you're not supposed to have those other two things unless you have the mikvah. Because it's the place where you encounter the holy and living God and you can be purified by him through that water. And they look on it as sort of akin to the waters of creation through which all things were purified and God used those waters from all of, from the beginning of creation and that's the reason you get natural water is because water is like matter it's neither created nor destroyed it changes form but the water that we have now is the water that's been there from the beginning and so it's the same water from creation and they see it as also like a child being born in the waters that it passes through in order to come through the birth canal and they see it all in that same way, and they see it as rebirth and recreation and renewal of life and renewal of hope in passing through the waters of the mikvah. And so we find those in various places. If you can't, you have to pass through those waters. For instance, you have to ritually purify yourselves before you could come to the temple in Jesus' day. You had to, the mikvah was an incredibly important part of life. But it was seen as primarily for sinners and converts. And what they say even today about converts is even if you have, uh, if want to convert and you have circumcised yourself as a male, you're still not a Jew until you have done a mikvah. So, but when John does this, he's not in the temple, he's not in a synagogue, he's in the world offering purification in the Jordan and calling people to repent, to prepare for this day of the Lord that Isaiah proclaimed. But he's doing it out of God's creation, not in the temple, not in the synagogue. And that's why he's a problem, is because he could have been a priest, because he was born into the line. But chose not to be and chose this different kind of ministry apart from the temple and in some ways that he's seen as a rival to the temple and so when the people go out to him remember that we then see in other places where the scribes and the pharisees and some from jerusalem are coming out to him and he calls them a brood of vipers and says who warned you to flee the wrath that's to come so john's preparing a people in the world not in the temple, not in the synagogue. He's preparing people for the coming of Christ into the world. And so he's preparing a unique and distinct people. He sees corruption in those other places more so than he sees it in the River Jordan. And so he calls the people there and the people are coming to him because God's Holy Spirit moved in them and brought them there. But John's message was a message of vengeance and judgment and the Lord coming in wrath. We have the same message as John. We're, we're, we should be preparing our brothers and sisters to live lives like Peter said in holiness and godliness. Church needs to clean some stuff up to say the least. I need to clean some stuff up to say the least. And so... We should be stirring one another and calling one another to love and good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says. And so it's important in these times when we can't meet in big groups in churches because we're not allowed to, it's important for us to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and stir one another up.
to keep one another accountable, to keep one another moving, to, to speak those words of Jesus, to call one another out on our stuff, but to encourage one another as well. And so John sees that. He calls people into the world because as he's been called into the world, as he's stepped away from his rightful call as being one of the priests of God, he's calling the people outside of those religious institutions and saying, this is enough. I'm not preparing you to go to the temple. I'm preparing you to meet the living God. And that's our role as Christians. And remember that one of the tasks that we've been given to do, though, is baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so it hasn't become less important but when we have encountered the living God in our baptism, then Jesus says we need not any longer be cleaned. It's only the parts of us that come into defilement with the world. And so he washed the feet of the disciples, and Peter begged him to wash his entire body. And he says, no, you have no need of that. And so we need to pull ourselves away from the sin of the world, but not from the world. We need to... Embrace the baptism that we've had in our lives when we became Christians or when we were small children. Either one of those. We embrace that and we, we take that baptism anew. And the way that we tend to do that in the churches that I'm a part of is we renew the covenant through the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Holy Communion. We take him in. It's not just something that's poured onto us. It's something that's taken into us in the form of bread and wine. And so while they take baths to do that, we've already been purified. We just need to take more and more of Jesus in in order that we might be purified from the inside out. But we need it no less than they. What are we waiting for? What are we preparing for? If you knew you were preparing to meet a king, you'd do certain things. You're preparing to meet the holy and living God. And it's a dangerous thing to fall into his hands. Thank you. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. And again, my name is John Green, and I look forward to being with you again next week when we begin to look at hope as we look at um, the coming of Christ into this world. And we begin to turn our eyes and reflect on the one who is who always will be.